Our text is Psalm 102, and the subject is journaling. Before I introduce that, let me just by way of review talk about what we looked at last time that we were here. We considered the subject of celebration and defined the subject of celebration as the practice of being genuinely present in the moments of our lives. And Christianity is a joyful faith, and joy is a theme that is found in many places in the Bible. A celebration is commanded by God. It's driven by gratitude to God and to the people around us for things that are going well that we have cause to celebrate. It provides strength and it also puts things into perspective. So there are a lot of different, a lot of different benefits of celebration. From a distinctly spiritual perspective, we celebrate when God changes lives the power of the Spirit at work in people's lives, whether they're being saved or people are uh, professing Him in baptism or their lives are being changed, they're growing, they're experiencing spiritual maturity. And then when we see churches started and the mission advance and the kingdom of God going forward, all of those things are spiritual calls uh, for celebration. This evening, journaling is our subject. And the Bible does not mention journaling, uh, but it is one of the classic spiritual disciplines that is considered to be a help for reflecting, for processing the things that we're learning about God and experiencing with God, as well as just processing daily life. So I've given you a definition there of what journaling is. It's processing life in a way that is consistent with the truth of God. So it's us processing what we know and what we experience through the grid of our understanding of the character and the nature of God, as well as how he interacts with us and how he invites us to interact with him. Journaling is a tool that has a variety of applications. We can write praises and petitions to God. We can write prayer requests as well as our answers. We can write excerpts uh, from our day. And then we could also write down insights from Scripture that we're experiencing, as well as other reading that we're doing and the insight that we're gaining from that. Now, the people of God have always kept written records of the works and the ways of God. This is a pattern of history. I think this is one of the reasons that journaling is seen as a classic spiritual discipline, because it's been a practice of believers. And keeping a journal can be a fruitful practice for self-understanding as well as evaluating and it should be very simple. Uh, there's no particular pattern for it that's right or wrong. Uh, it's just something that we can practice as far as the pattern that we find that works for us. So I'm going to read Psalm 102, and then I'm going to introduce the psalm to you, and then we'll come back and think about some things that relate to journaling. So I pick up reading here in Psalm 102 and verse 1. It's a fairly long psalm, but I'll go ahead and read the entirety of it. It says, a prayer of suffering of a suffering person who is weak and pours out his lament before the Lord. Now, verse 1, Lord, hear my prayer. Let my cry for help come before you. Do not hide your face from me in my day of trouble. Listen closely to me. Answer me quickly when I call. For my days vanish like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is suffering, withered like grass. I even forget to eat my food. Because of the sound of my groaning, my flesh sticks to my bones. I'm like an eagle owl, like a little owl among the ruins. I stay awake. I'm like a solitary bird on a roof. 
My enemies taunt me all day long. They ridicule and use my name as a curse. I eat ashes like bread and mingle my drinks with tears because of your indignation and wrath, for you have picked me up and thrown me aside. My days are like a lengthening shadow, and I wither away like grass. Now verse 12. But you, Lord, are enthroned forever. Your fame endures to all generations. You will rise up and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to show favor to her. The appointed time has come. For your servants take delight in its stones and favor its dust. Then the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth, your glory. For the Lord will rebuild Zion. He will appear in his glory. He will pay attention to the prayer of the destitute and will not despise their prayer. Verse 18, this will be written for a later generation. And a people who have not yet been created will praise the Lord. He looked down from his holy heights. The Lord gazed out from earth to heaven or from heaven to earth to hear a prisoner's groaning, to set free those condemned to die, so that they might declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when peoples and kingdoms are assembled to serve the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. I say, my God, do not take me in the middle of my life. Your years continue through all generations. Long ago you established the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. All of them will wear out like clothing. You will change them like a garment, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years will never end. Your servants' children will dwell securely, and their offspring will be established before you. The Psalms, generally speaking, are often multifaceted in their application. I think this psalm is describing uh, the people of God, maybe specifically Jerusalem, in a state of ruin. It might have been written by those who were in exile, who were mourning over both their personal and national affliction. Some think that it could have been written by Daniel or Jeremiah or Nehemiah uh, because it seems to speak of the ruin of Zion and a time set for the rebuilding of it, uh, which Daniel understood uh, in what he wrote it's been regarded as one of seven penitential psalms so you have psalm 6 uh, 32 38 51 130 143 and also this one that is a psalm of lament as well as dealing with a cry of concern to the lord similarities to some of the statements that are written in isaiah 40 through 66 as well so you'll see some allusions there as well as some direct uh, comparisons. Now, ultimately, this is a messianic psalm. It reflects the dialogue between God the Father. How do we know this? We know it because it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 5. And in verse 7 and 8, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he heard, was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So this psalm has a direct messianic connection by virtue of how it's quoted in the New Testament. It's organized into three obvious sections. Now, I'm not going to follow the pattern of the sections the way it's organized because I have a different topic approach from, from it tonight. 
but it's organized in three distinct sections. The first being verse 1 through 11, the second being verse 12 through 22, and then the third being verse 23 to 28. Verses 1 through 11, 12 to 22, and then 23 to 28. Now I think the key verse is found in verse 18. Look again at what verse 18 says. This will be written for a later generation and a people who have not yet been created will praise the Lord. Now think about that. This is the word of God being passed down to the people of God, ultimately to us. And he says, listen, this is written and recorded so that the people who have not yet been created will praise the Lord. Well, that's us in part. There's a lot more people included in that, but it's certainly us. And I want to emphasize that it's written for a later generation. So in a sense, that's what our journaling is, although our journaling is not inspired. It's whatever we want to put on paper or what we think is important, our experiences. So I'm not equating it with the Bible, but I'm just saying simply that there are things that are patterned where we can pass on our faith. We can pass on uh, the things that are of value to us as we serve the Lord. So I want to show you, first of all, that journaling includes communicating with God. Journaling includes communicating with God. In verse 1, he says, Lord, hear my prayer. Let my cry for help come before you. Now, I hope you recognize as we're reading through this that Psalm 102 is a prayer in its entirety. And in its entirety, it serves as a good example of what it looks like to cry out to God in a time of need. And while we don't know what the specific circumstances are, we know that the writer was clearly in distress. He finds himself in a place where he feels like he's far from God. And he's longing to presence and the blessing of God. The psalm comes from an afflicted one. And he's begging essentially for the, God to hear his prayer, knowing that if God hears his prayer, he will not ignore his plea. He's hoping that God will speedily answer him in his distress. He's lamenting that he's overwhelmed and he's in desperate straits because of the approach of the enemy. And yet in the midst of all of this swirling around him, he takes comfort in the Lord. And in his distress, he urges the Lord to answer him quickly. Now you'll notice that verse 1 and 2 are repetitive in nature. It's clear that the psalmist understands his need for God and he understands the desperation of his need for God. He understands the predicament that he's in and he knows that God's intervention and God's salvation are his only hope and that's what draws him in to lament as he does. James Boyce said there's no passive or half-hearted petition, no mere formal saying of prayers. Quite the contrary. It is an impassioned prayer because the situation out of which it grows is desperate. And desperate conditions make for strong petitions. I love that phrase. Desperate conditions make for strong petitions. Journaling includes communicating with God through praise and petition. So let's look at a few of the things that he says here and how he presents them to God or communicates them to God in his prayer. He says, first of all, in verse 1, let my cry come to you. Throughout the ages, believers have cried out to God in times of distress. Crying out is voicing a fervent petition to God. 
There is an urgency about it. There's a passion about it. There's a focus about it. And there is a reliance of God in it. C.S. Lewis said relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing had been done. And I think that's so true because at times we have a crisis. We pray with some urgency and some fervency, with some focus and purpose. And then the storm passes and what happens? We start to get a little bit slack. Well, the pressure's off. Problem is at least under control or it seems to be almost in our past and we lose that urgency we lose that passion and we can't afford to do that and I think journaling helps us stay in that that rhythm of coming before the Lord with our needs and communicating with God communicating with God is essential to growing in your faith and deepening your relationship with God and I've said this often but I'll continue to say it that if you are not spending time in prayer in the word you will not grow spiritually it's just not going to happen. Now, you might get some bits and pieces here and there where you're in church or maybe you're in a Bible study group or something else, and those things influence you and, you, and you think, oh, I should probably do better in this area. I probably should pursue this. But if you're not personally feeding for yourself, if you're not personally engaging with God through His Word and His Spirit, you will not grow spiritually. And you will not grow in the way that you should be growing, even if you are only... Uh, hitting it or half halfway or just when it's convenient for you rather than as a pursuit of God listen to what Jeremiah 33 and verse 3 says it says call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you did not know Psalm 34 and verse 17 says the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles Psalm 56 and verse 9 when I cry to you then my enemies will turn back this I know, for God is with me. And then finally, Psalm 143 and verse 7. Answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. Don't hide your face from me or I will be like those going down to the pit. A cry for help comes from humility and a posture of surrender. The humility precedes the cry because we're recognizing our inability and God's ability or our weakness and God's strength our limitations and God's power and then surrender because we're stepping back and we're going to receive what God's answer is for our crisis or for our situation so we humble ourselves before the Lord and that's our spiritual attitude but then our posture is Lord we want to surrender to you and we want to we want to receive whatever you have for us and we want to be in a position where we can do that. The Bible's filled with illustrations of people crying out to God. I think about Elijah who cried out to God and God raised up a boy who had died in 1 Kings 17. Or Jehoshaphat who cried out to God and he was delivered from death in 2 Chronicles 18. Or what about Hezekiah who cried out to God and got the victory, but he also ends up getting his life extended because he cries out to God in desperation. The disciples of Jesus cried out to Jesus. They called to him in the storm, and Jesus rescued them. Blind Bartimaeus cried out to Jesus, and Jesus restored his sight in Mark chapter 10. These are just a few examples in the Scripture of people who, in their desperate circumstances, cried out to God, and God answered 
God answered in the moment that they had the need according to his timing. Now, it's interesting here that the psalmist employs what are called anthropomorphisms. Now, that's a long word, but anthro means human, and morphos means to have a form. So what he employs is attributing the qualities of one thing to another. That's common in literature, but it represents an understanding of God with human descriptors. Now, there's a distinction here because this is different uh, from a theophany. A theophany in the Old Testament is a pre-incarnate appearance. So it's often, it could be a Christophany if it's a pre-incarnate um, appearance of Jesus, for example. But a theophany is, uh, for example, when uh, uh, Jacob wrestled with God. Or there are a number of different examples like that where it seems like God has shown up on the scene and he's there in a theophany. This is an anthropomorphism, meaning that it's using human descriptors for God, saying things like God has hands, or he has feet, or he has nostrils, or ears, or a face, or whatever it might be. And God works with us in our time frame, which he created. So it's not unusual to think that God would be assigned with hands, or eyes, or a face, or, anything, or ears, or anything else. But it's simply a way of comparing so that we can understand, because we're limited human beings and we have this one perspective about how people interact and when we hear that God is spirit and we're to worship him in spirit and in truth then what are we to make of a cry like this to God uh, so examples of some anthropomorphisms in the Old Testament are when God said I will stretch out my hand on Egypt or the prayer request Lord uh, make his face shine upon you or by the breath of his mouth, the heavens were made. Or the eyes of the Lord are positioned toward the righteous. Or maybe his scattered, he scattered his enemies with his mighty arm. So these are all examples of this to point us to how we're to understand God from a human perspective. He says in verse 2, do not hide your face from me. This idea of face is important in the Old Testament also because it's often translated as presence. And to seek the face of God is to seek the presence of God. Now, we use this term uh, fairly often in Christian circles where we might say that we're praying about something in particular and we say, let's seek the face of God on this. Well, that would be rooted in Scripture because what we're doing is we're seeking the presence of God. Now, obviously, the Spirit of God dwells in us. God is everywhere. God is always with us. But it's an attention that is connected to the presence. So we're saying, do not hide your face from me. What we're saying is, God, we need your presence. We need your attention. And we need your answer to this situation. A person's face shows a lot about a person. It shows inward emotions that are expressed outwardly. And God's face tells us something about his holy character because it's obscured from human beings, from the flesh. But then at the same time, we're encouraged to seek the face of the Lord in the scripture. And we're reminded that God is our constant companion. And we're reminded that he wants us to know him through and through. So I would say it this way. The nature of true worship is to seek the face of God. The nature of true worship is to experience the presence of God 
in the power of his spirit. He says in verse 2 also, incline your ear to me. Daniel 9 records Daniel observing that the exile of the Jews in Babylon was going to last about 70 years. God would then allow his people to return to the land of Israel. Daniel recognized that the 70 years were almost over and he prayed to God in Daniel 9 and he said, incline your ear and hear. So what did Daniel recognize? He recognized that the time of deliverance was near. So what he did was he praised God, he confessed the sin of the people, and he appealed to God to bring it about. And God indeed inclined his ear and he sent an answer to the prayer. Now one of the things that's beautiful about what God knows versus what we know is that God sees the full panoramic of everything. There's nothing God doesn't hear. There's nothing God doesn't see. There's nothing that God doesn't know. And I know that's all double negatives, but it still holds. God is, he sees, he knows, and we look to him because we believe that to be the case. In verse 2, he says, in the day that I call, answer me speedily. So there's some urgency here. And I think this is part of what we're invited to do in Hebrews when we're invited to approach the throne of grace and to come boldly and with confidence. That when we come boldly and with confidence, we're coming with a spiritual openness about us and we're explaining to God what we need and also the timing that we need it in. Now, that doesn't make God do anything. We're not boxing God in. And just because we're praying for an urgent or speedy response, it's not as though God's going to get in a hurry. But again, that's a way for us to think about what we're asking of God. Because God can do something instantly that we couldn't do in our entire lifetime. He can do more in a moment than we could do in eternity. And he can do it by a spoken word in answer to prayer. Think about when Nehemiah was in Babylon and he learned the Jews in Jerusalem were in distress. You remember the walls of the city were burnt down. He was so overwhelmed. He was broken. He fasted before the Lord. He went to God with a prayer of urgency. In Nehemiah 1, beginning in verse 5, he says this, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. So, we could talk about the story, but I want to talk more about the pattern. When Nehemiah approached God, he approached God with an attitude of reverence and with a spirit of praise. And he's coming to God and he says, listen, God, I know that you're the God who keeps the covenant. I know that your love is steadfast. I know these things are dependable. And when we keep your commandments, you show these things to us. He said, now I'm going to ask something of you. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open and hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you. But now I want you to see the duration and the intensity with which Nehemiah prayed. It's something we don't see very often and probably don't practice very often. But he said, I now pray before you day and night. That is a consistent prayer. And he's, then he confesses that the people had sinned against God. So he's asking the Lord to purify them, to answer on their behalf, 
and to show his power. And of course, God would do that. And they were able to accomplish some remarkable things in just a short amount of time. But it's often when we're praying these types of intense prayers that God is doing things that we could not have anticipated, that could not take place in the natural realm, and that God does on our behalf. So let me give you an illustration of this from missionary history. The story is told of John G. Patton. You might have heard that name, P-A-T-O-N, a trailblazing missionary in the South Pacific who served in the New Hebrides Islands. One night, Patton and his wife found themselves threatened by hostile natives who were in the area who had surrounded their mission headquarters. They didn't want them there. The Pattons thought for sure that the natives would burn the headquarters down and they both were going to die. They prayed throughout the night asking God to protect them from harm. The next morning, they were astonished when they realized that the people had gone away. They had no idea why they had left. The missionaries again prayed and thanked the Lord for saving them. And about a year passed, about a year later. The chief of the native tribe who had threatened them had become a believer, a follower of Christ. So he comes to visit the Patton's. And when he was asked about the incident of that night of terror, the chief, who was now a Christian, told the Patton's that he and his men were too fearful to carry out their plan of attack. And here was why. They had seen an army of giant men, and I quote, in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands, surrounding the mission grounds. Patton and the chief agreed that there was no explanation other than God had sent his angels to keep the missionaries from harm. Now, I wonder how often those types of things happen miraculously on our behalf, and we may not ever know. The year might not pass when the chief comes and talks to us and tells us about how we avoided sure disaster or harm. But when we pray, we can know that God is at work and we pray with urgency expecting God to hear. So I think journaling is part of this because it includes communicating with God. Now I'm going to give you two more points tonight and then I'm going to give you some practical application and I'll talk to you about how uh, you might actually apply this uh, to your life and to your practice of, of journaling. The second point is that journaling includes transparency before God. Journaling includes transparency before God. Now, what does transparency mean? Transparency means to be free from pretense or deceit. So it's something that you can easily see through and readily understand. So I ask the question to you this way as it relates to a spiritual uh, question. Are you transparent in your relationship with God? And the immediate answer, but then we start thinking about how we actually think through things and the things that we think we can somehow hide from God and we kind of compartmentalize our lives. There's all sorts of ways why we're at, where we're not actually as transparent as we think we might be. And transparency should describe our relationship with God because it's when you can see through something. It's when a person is not pretentious, where they disclose their victories and their defeats and the key to transparency is to admit that we are flawed and to resist self-righteousness now admittedly transparency is difficult we often resist opening up to people for a, for a number of reasons 
The main one is we're concerned about what they're going to think about us. And the same could apply in our relationship with God. What, what's God going to think about me if I confess this sin to him? What's God going to think about me if I write down this experience where I really messed up and, and didn't do what I was supposed to do? Or what's God going to think about me if I'm honest about my spiritual lukewarmness right now? Well, let me tell you what God's going to think about you. He's going to think the same thing he already thinks because he already knows. But the point is the relationship. The point is the transparency. So if you're going to communicate with God, the way to communicate with God is through transparency. And we've got to ask ourselves, how transparent are we before God? Because he's omniscient over all of life. He knows everything that can possibly be known about us. And where the Bible teaches that God is all-knowing or omniscient, the word omniscient comes from two words, one signifying all, the other signifying knowledge. So when we say that God is omniscient, we're saying literally, God possesses all knowledge that there is to possess. He does not have to learn anything. He's not forgotten anything. He doesn't have to reason anything out. He doesn't have to find anything out. He doesn't have to learn anything gradually. He doesn't have to be educated like we do. He knows everything that has happened and will happen. And he also knows every potential thing that might happen. And God even knows those things that humankind has yet to discover. This knowledge of God is not acquired. And it's not partial. It's absolute. Now, some of you are experts in your field, whatever your vocation is, or maybe just a particular hobby or something else you enjoy. You're an expert in that. And you probably know more than 95% of other people would possibly know about that particular thing. And for most of us, it takes years to acquire that kind of knowledge. We get institutional knowledge. We get experiential knowledge. We just get life experience and, and practical ability to relate to people. All this comes together so that we can do whatever it is that we're doing when we're running in that lane that we're running in. God has no lane. God has no single area of expertise. It didn't take him any time to get it. He's the eternal God, and he possesses all that there is. So the omniscience of God speaks of his perfect knowledge, his perfect understanding, and his perfect wisdom, because you've got to have wisdom to be able to apply the knowledge. I like what John Calvin wrote in the Institutes of Christian Religion. He said, nearly all the wisdom that we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. So if we're going to journal and we're going to communicate with God and we're going to be transparent with God, then the last thing we need to do is try to hide from God. And we all know that a lack of transparency is dangerous spiritually. The first example we would find of this in the Bible is Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had their eyes open when they disobeyed God and they knew that something was wrong. The account in Genesis 3 and verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Well, let me just tell you here. Had you been in that circle? That sounds like a nice little saying that they heard the sound of God walking in the cool of the garden. That would have been terrifying because you just did the exact opposite of what he told you to do. And he's looking for you. So here they are. And it says, And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So what did they try to do? They tried to solve the problem by covering themselves with fig leaves. 
Prior to their sin, there were no barriers between them and God. But instead of casting themselves on the mercy of the Creator, they ran from the only one who could help them in their shame. Now listen, whatever it is that you're struggling with, whether it be a situational crisis or a life-besetting sin or something that just seems to be hanging on and holding on, the devil wants to tell you that if you try to conceal that and keep that away from other people and away from God, that somehow you can handle it and you can deal with it. But let me tell you where freedom is found. Freedom is found in the light. Freedom is found in transparency before God. Freedom is found in accountability to other believers who are going to love you and help you through the situation that you're in, no matter how deep your shame or your disappointment or your challenge is. So don't ever buy into that lie that somehow if you hide, there's going to be success. If you hide from God or you try to hide from accountability from other people, you're going to suffer the consequences. But if you'll step into the light, God will help you and he'll be there for you. He'll even come looking for you and meet you at your point of need with his grace and his mercy. Don't run from God. Run to God. I read an illustration last week about these 737 MAX airplanes that are a little bit troublesome right now. They can't seem to keep the doors on them, but there were problems before this. You might not know about this. There was a congressional investigation into the 737 MAX airplane that found in the original investigation before this whole snafu came up uh, that there was culpability with Boeing, the airplane manufacturer, as well as the FFA, FAA, which is the agency charged with their oversight. Specifically, listen to this, the report criticizes Boeing for having, and I quote, a culture of concealment and for the agency being fundamentally flawed. So what they did was they took them out of active use back in 2019 because there were two crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia that resulted in more than 300 people being killed and according to the report the fatalities happened because of failures across the board and here's another quote the crashes were the horrific culmination of a series of faulty technical assumptions by boeing's engineers a lack of transparency on the part of boeing's management and grossly insufficient oversight by the faa now, Boeing promised fundamental changes in its internal management structure as well as in the actual airplane itself. But even from just a common sense, earthly example, a lack of transparency causes trouble. It can cost lives. And by the way, I think we're going to see a lot more in the next decade come out about what we experienced through the whole COVID pandemic relative to a lot of a lack of transparency. And there's going to be a lot, mark my words. It's trouble when people try to cover themselves rather than tell the truth. Now look at verse 3. It says, For my days vanish like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. This is wording similar to Job. Did anybody pick up on that? The psalmist describes his agony. His days are passing like smoke. Smoke passes swiftly and irrecoverably. And his deep pain made it feel like his bones were burning. Our heart is inherently deceitful and tries to convince us that hiding from God is possible. 
Our flesh is so innately corrupt that it believes the lies that our heart tells us. But he says here in verse 4, my heart is suffering. It's withered like grass. I even forget to eat my food. Dressed. His heart ached and he had no appetite. He says in verse 5, because of the sound of my groaning, my flesh sticks to my bones. This is like Job 19 and verse 20 where he was so weak and so thin that there seemed to be nothing between his bones and his skin. He felt like a restless bird. He describes himself as a a pelican, an owl, or, or even a sparrow. And when you are transparent before God, you will experience the blessing of trusting God more. You'll experience the blessing of being loved unconditionally. You'll experience the confidence of being in a right relationship with God. You can bring your prayers to Him with confidence. And you can claim a verse like Proverbs 18 and verse 10, where it says the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are protected. Run to God, not from God. And when we run to God, he receives us in mercy and grace. And maybe that's all you need to hear tonight. This is the whole summary. It's not even about journaling necessarily for you. But it's the message that you need to run to God spiritually. That's the only way to have a strong relationship with him. And I think journaling includes transparency before God. Now I'm going to move along to the third and, and final point. And that is journaling includes a realistic perspective about life. Journaling includes a re- realistic perspective about life. Now look at verse 11. He says, my days are like a lengthening shadow and I wither away like grass. He's just being honest. The psalmist is speaking of the frailty and the fleeting nature of life. He says, listen, our lives are like shadows. They wither away like the grass. But you'll notice something here in a distinct shift in this psalm. The first 11 verses are filled with personal references. I, me, my. But notice the shift that takes place in verse 12. But you, Lord, are enthroned forever. Your fame endures to all generations. So the first 11 verses, he's saying, listen, God, I'm in distress here. I need your help. We need your ear. We need your eyes. We need your attention. We need this urgently. And then he says, but you, Lord, are enthroned forever. And the focus changes, and it is set on God. It's also is echoed in James 4 and verse 14 where he said, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. A vapor is like a fine mist of fog. It burns away when the sun comes up. It has no substance. It leaves nothing behind. And life can feel endless at times, but compared to eternity, an individual life is like a vapor that is chased away by the morning sun. This is the reality of the human experience. So what we need is we need perspective of the brevity of life to make the most of the time that we have that's why the psalmist prayed in psalm 90 and verse 12 teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom now in part the way we do that is we live with eternity before us and that's what's emphasized in verse 25 and 26 in this psalm where he says long ago you established the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish but you will endure All of them will wear out like clothing. You will change them like a garment and they will pass away. Now there's another interesting quote here because Psalm 102 in verse 25 to 27 
is quoted in Hebrews 1 in verse 10 through 12 as the words of God the Father to God the Son, the Messiah. God has complete power and authority over all that he has made. Verse 18 is that verse that uh, I emphasized earlier about the words being recorded for a later generation and people who have not yet been created. You know, we have a responsibility as believers to leave a legacy of praise for future generations. Oral traditions mentioned several places in the Psalms, but this is the only place where the memory of great events is mentioned as being preserved in writing. When God hears the prayers of his people in a time of trial, it'll be recorded and it'll be remembered that it may be referred to in similar circumstances in the time to come. So one of the things we can do as, as followers of Christ is we can create a legacy even about how we talk about things. Are, are we passing stories of faith down? Are we passing experiences of, of, of God intervening in times of crisis and God answering prayers and, and what God means to and how God is growing us spiritually? Because what he's doing now is going to be remembered one way or the other, but it can be through us. There was a man driving in the country one day and he saw an old man sitting on a fence rail watching the cars go by. Stopping to pass the time of day, the traveler said, I can never stand living out here. You don't see anything, and I'm sure you don't travel like I do. I'm on the go all the time. The old man on the fence looked down at the stranger, and he said, You know, I can't see much difference in what I'm doing and what you're doing. I sit on the fence and watch the cars go by, and you sit in the car and watch the fences go by. It's just the way you look at things. You see, perspective matters, and perspective is powerful. And I believe journaling can include a realistic perspective about life. Now let's look at verse 27 and I'm going to wrap up with some practical application. He says, but you are the same and your years will never end. We talked about the omniscience of God. Now this is the immutability of God. The immutability of God is the character of God that never changes and is taught throughout scripture. The scripture says very plainly of God, I the Lord do not change. There's no qualification to it. There's no elaboration on it. It's just, I, the Lord, do not change. And that's a difficult thing for us to understand because change is constant. We hear the phrases all the time, every day at work. We hear, well, change is here to stay. We live in changing times. The only constant is change. The only thing you can depend on is change. We hear this all the time. And yet, here we are worshiping this God who is immutable. He doesn't change in his essence. He doesn't change in his nature. He doesn't change in his perfections. And he cannot increase, he cannot decrease, he is. And as Stephen Charnock said in terms of the, the character of God, he said God is without any new nature or new thought or new will or new purpose or new place. In other words, God is a necessary being. He is necessarily what he is and therefore he is unchangeably what he is. I, the Lord, do not change. So now by way of review, there's a beautiful progression in this psalm. And I want you to note this. He begins with an honest declaration of his own misery. Then he looks outside of himself to the community. He looks ahead to the future generations. And then he ultimately lands on who God is. And he's wanting this to be recorded and to be remembered. Now, let me come back to the statement I said earlier. Journaling is not mentioned in the Bible. Journaling is not essential to the Christian life. 
but it can be a blessing to you. It can help you keep up with the adventures of life and of God. It can capture the past. It can recognize the blessings of the present. And it can help you fix your eyes on the future. So here are a few ways that I practically practice this. Number one, there is a free journaling app, depending on what version of the iPhone that you have. It's probably on Android as well, but I don't have an Android, so I can't speak for that. But there's a free journaling app, and it is creatively called Journal. Like, you don't have to remember anything. It's just a journal, okay? And it's got a nice little icon with it, and then there, and that one's free. There's also an app that's a few dollars that is called the Day One app. Now, I like the free version better of Journal uh, rather than the Day One app, but either one of them are good. So on your phone, you could record things about your day or maybe a picture that you took or something else, and you could keep up with it from a journaling perspective. A second thing that I practice is a few years ago, I started using the journaling Bibles. These journaling Bibles, um, you can't see it probably from the back, but it is a journaling Bible. You have to take my word for it. It has places you can write on both sides, and then it has single-column scripture, meaning this, it's all the way across the page. It's a little bit easier to read. And these are excellent tools. You can buy these. Find them on sale sometimes for 20-something dollars. Sometimes they're as much as 50, depending on what you get. You can get them in different translations, depending on what translations that you like. And what got me into it was I had an idea a few years back that's taken me longer to accomplish than what I thought it would, where I was going to journal through the entire Bible, and I was going to do it for each one of my kids. And when I got done with it, I was going to give them the Bible. Well, I'd done two out of three. This is the third one. And I'm working my way through. I work through a section in the Old Testament and the New Testament every day, sometimes more than others, just depending on what, how much time I have or whatever. Um, and I'll write in the introduction of the book, at the front of the book, different ideas about it, that I'll write a prayer at the end of the book and just try to interact with the Scripture and uh, some thoughts that I have. So I, I'm a fan of the journaling Bibles. I think they're helpful. And then something that I employed this year for the first time ever is actually writing Scripture down. And what I started with is my favorite book in the New Testament, and that is the book of Romans. And I'm writing out the entire book of Romans as part of my journaling time. Sometimes it's only a few verses, depending on how much time I have. Sometimes it's an entire chapter. I've gotten through in eight weeks, for example, uh, almost six chapters of the entire book of Romans. And I'm just going to continue on through that methodically because it helps me as my mind is thinking from what I'm reading in the scripture to my mind to what I'm writing down and I'm going to do this as part of my practice and it's been a blessing to me so far the last thing that I have here is my prayer journal let me say before I get to the prayer journal there's been a whole lot of my Christian life where I've just been sporadic I'll change midstream sometimes particularly what I'm doing I am not presenting myself as some perfect paragon of devotional experience. I'm trying to give you some practical helps here, so just work with me. Uh, but I want to be clear about that, that God's grace has been sufficient for me in my devotional life for decades. And I've grown in it, and I've grown a lot more consistent uh, through the years, and, and I'm always blessed when I do. But I just want to encourage you in that because it's a work in progress. And you've got to start simply if you're not doing much now, and then you've got to be consistent. 
But in this prayer journal, I have it uh, divided. And what I have is one of the ARC systems. I love these notebooks. I'm a huge fan of these notebooks. I have the big version as well that has my calendar and everything in it. They're not cheap, but they're really nice because they lay flat and they look nice and the paper's nice to write on. But I have this divided into daily, which is basically my daily experience with God. I don't write anything that's extensive, but what I'll do is I'll write maybe a key verse that I read that morning. And I read Oswald Chambers most days, my, most for his highest. A lot of times I'll write a blurb that I'll find that he said or maybe some other uh, devotional that I'm reading. And I'll write that down in my daily experience. The second tab here is my family. And with my family, I'm keeping real-time prayer requests for things that I'm praying for them physically, spiritually, emotionally, practically. And then I'm marking down when those prayers get answered and that's been an encouragement and a blessing to me. The next one involves you because it's the church section. And in the church section, I have some themes that we're focusing on, and then I have a running prayer list of the most immediate needs. Now, this might surprise you, but I can't pray for hundreds of people at once. I can pray a general prayer, but specifically, I'm praying for the most urgent needs most of the time. So I'm praying for a front burner who's in the hospital, who's struggling in their marriage, who's dealing with anxiety and depression, who's dealing with a wayward child, who's dealing with needing a job, just a variety of things that we all experience. And I keep those in my prayer list and I update those as I see them answered in terms of the church family. Then I pray specifically for staff. All of our staff's names are in here and their family members' names, specific things that I know that we share, that we talk about. And then I have a section here on mission and kingdom. And in the mission and kingdom section, what I do is I have it divided up into days. And I pray for a certain area of the world that we're serving in on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so on. And that way I can cover all the different areas that I want to pray for. And that's pretty much the balance of the, the prayer journal. Now, I would like to have started this when I was much younger and been a lot more consistent in it. I've, I've told you the experience I had years ago when I was in Elmer Towns. Uh, doctoral seminar and he pulled out a lot thicker notebook than mine and in that thicker notebook he had loose leaf pages that were about the size of this notebook right here from 50 years daily 50 years daily and this has been 25 years ago so I guess the man he's still living I guess he's got 75 years now I don't know incredibly consistent and, and that was an encouragement to me. I've not done that, but I want to be more like, I aspire to be more like that and whatever that means for us. So that's just some ways that you can apply this, some very simple ways. Uh, this is not about trying to measure up. This is about communing with God. And if you think about your devotional life with God, not as a drudgery, but as an opportunity, not an obligation, it's going to change how you approach God every single day because you're approaching him knowing that he loves you, he receives you, and he shines his grace upon you. So I hope journaling might be something that would be helpful to you if you're not already doing it. I'd say do something simple as just get a little cheap notebook. If you don't want to invest in a journal or something else to see if you're going to do it consistently, get that free app on your phone if you have the ability to do that. And just start, just write, just write a thought down for the day of what the Lord said to you through his word and through his spirit 